Father, we thank you that you have given us your son. I thank you that you have revealed to us your truth and that we have your word. I ask, Father God, that you'd fill us with your word and that you'd, you'd transform us by the power of your word. And I ask, Father God, that as we go through the rest of this day and the rest of our lives, that we would glorify you in all that we say and do, and that we would be consumed by you, by your word, and by the work that you've done. Father, thank you that we have opportunity to fellowship today, and I ask that you would be with the children as they go downstairs, that they would celebrate around your word as well. Fill them with the truth and help them, Father God, to understand the gift of grace that you've given us. Father, thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Children are excused. We're beginning a new, a new series this, this morning. We're, we're calling it Summer Psalms. And it's a series looking at the Psalms. The Psalms are amazing. Uh, we, we connect with God at a, at a very personal level when we, we read and pray the Psalms. The, the Psalms are, are an awesome place for us to go in our daily devotions. They powerfully bring us to a, a greater understanding of the vastness of God and, and increase our perspective of His glory and His greatness and His preeminence. If you've spent any time in Psalms, you know that they move us into a deeper place of worship. They, they do this as, as, as they relate to us. Because the Psalms relate to the realities of our thoughts, our emotions, and the struggles that we have in life. They're very real. The Psalms are a great place to, to pray. The Hebrew Bible uses a, a phrase, a, a word, that literally means book of praises. So the Hebrew Bible uses that phrase as the title of this book. The Septuagint translated that term it's a, in, into, a, into Greek using a term psalmos. And literally, psalmos means um, a song sung to the accompaniment of stringed instruments. And this is where we get our word psalms. This is a collection. The book of Psalms is a collection of songs, poetry, and it was used in, in, in the Hebrew worship almost like, like our hymnal. The songs and poetry express a, a wide range of things like, like praise and lament, confession, worship, wisdom, history, prophecy, and wisdom of life. And because of the nature of how the psalms are, are, are written, they are a fabulous source of Scripture to pray and to be encouraged by in times of our greatest need. If you're ever in a time and you just don't know what to pray because life is happening, go to the Psalms and just turn, turn Psalms into prayer. It's, it's fascinating and it's, it's powerful. 
the Psalms have a great history of use by the church in worship services and prayer and personal guidance. And all of the Psalms are great. And that's nice, but we don't have three, four, or five years to go through every single one of them. We're not going to look at every single Psalm this summer, but we're going to begin with Psalm number one. And it's appropriate. And, and the, the, the first psalm is appropriate as the first psalm because it sets the tone for the entire book. It, it states very clearly the only two ways humanity can live. So it begins the book by making this very clear statement that you either live the life of righteousness with God or the life of the wicked separated from God. This is a theme that recurs throughout the entire book. Throughout the, the, the book of Psalms, you will find blessing and you will find warnings about judgment. Let's look at today's psalm, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now we begin the psalm and the book of Psalms with a very familiar word to us because as we've gone through our study in Beatitudes, we've, we've seen this word blessed. And the Hebrew word here literally means, oh, the happiness, oh, the happiness. So, so this is one of those, you need to get dancy feet and you need to be really joyful. It literally has an idea of exclamation and strong emotion. Like the Beatitudes, the, the author of this psalm gives us biblically a, a way that, that God has for us to find this, this bouncy kind of internal joy, this happiness in life. And the psalmist presents a, a positive and a negative view of blessing. So, so we're going to begin with three things. And, and so the first three are the negatives that a person who is happy, a person who has this internal happiness, these are the things that a, a blessed person doesn't do. The first one, the blessed person doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Walk is a term that we, we, we find throughout Scripture, and it's, it's common, and it means how a person lives. How do you live? Do you, do you live in the counsel of the wicked or not? And counsel comes from a term that suggests the idea of a plot. And it was used to mean advice, planning, viewpoint, or a way of thinking. So you can, you can understand the, the counsel of the wicked like this. The wicked is in denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. The counsel of the wicked promote, the counsel of the wicked promotes human pride. The counsel of the wicked elevates false ideas of basic human goodness while lessening or removing the need for Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. So, so what I mean there is the counsel of the wicked makes men and women bigger and greater and pulls God down lower. That's the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked also denies the absolutes of God's moral standards. 
The counsel of the wicked emphasizes pleasing self rather than on pleasing God and others. The words that the psalmist used teach us that the happy person, the blessed person, rejects the recommendations, the directions, the influences, and the practices of the wicked. The wicked, well, we're going to see some more of that later, but the wicked are those that by their lifestyle and their character are opposed to God and God's character, God's word. Second negative. The blessed, the happy, they don't stand in the path of sinners. Sinners, those are, those are people who miss the mark. And stand, stand literally means to stand on one's feet, just like I'm doing. But it was also used to refer to serving. So if you were serving someone in your job or as an employee or or serving somebody out of kindness, you could also see this term used. A good biblical example of this would be Joseph, who served Pharaoh. To stand also means to live somewhere, to remain there. It's taking a position and and enduring in that place. So the blessed person doesn't take that kind of a stand with those who are wicked, those who are sinning, those who are purposely opposed to God. The blessed doesn't share the course of life with them. This is is a concept that, that we see often contrasted in Scripture. Those who are wicked don't don't follow the path of God. They gotta do their own thing. The blessed person has taken the narrow path or the gate, the narrow gate. Jesus describes this in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, he says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Those who are blessed choose Jesus, choose the things of God. It's narrow. The third one that the psalmist presents is the blessed person doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, now sit refers to and and carries the idea of dwelling or or remaining. And a key part of that definition that I like is abiding. A person who sits in the seat of scoffers is comfortable and content with the world's system and practices. They're comfortable there. and, And they're comfortable with a sinful lifestyle. The other part of being a scoffer is contempt. They have a contempt for God and His people. And scoffers mock and ridicule. And and they show contempt for God's word and holiness. Scoffers are arrogantly opposed to God's truth. So the contrast in the psalm is that the blessed person doesn't sit there. They abide somewhere else. The psalmist contrasts these three then with three positives. Three positives that a blessed person does do. The first one 
His delight. So, so this is in verses 2 and 3. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by, by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in season. And its leaf does not wither. In all He does, He prospers. Delight. What does that mean? Delight in the law of the Lord. Delight means to take pleasure or find enjoyment in something. And there's, there's also associated with this term a great deal, a high degree of gratification or satisfaction. And I like Webster's def- definition. This is his definition found in his 1828 dictionary. I want you really to hear this. Delight is a more permanent pleasure than joy. And not dependent on sudden excitement. So delight's really deep. Let me, let me, let me read that to you again. It, it's a good definition. Delight is more permanent, more permanent pleasure than joy. And not dependent on sudden excitement. Delight. This means... When we experience the Word of God and delight in it, our heart and minds are captured by its beauty and truth and power. And we spend time in God's Word. And as we do that, and we're we're delighting in that, the world system and, and those things of the world, just they don't have any appeal. They don't satisfy. This is connected with the second thing the psalmist says that the blessed person does. The blessed person meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always struggled a little bit with the concept of meditation. I knew some people in college, uh, a couple of people in particular that were into meditation. And they'd sit with their legs crossed funny and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I always thought, if I did that, somebody would have to go get the EMTs to unfold me because I'd get stuck. And I talked with one of these people one time, you know, what, what are you doing while we're meditating? What's your purpose in that? To empty our minds. And then what? So, so for me sometimes the term meditation, I struggle with a little bit. So I want to work through that just a little because I want us to grasp this idea because it's vitally important for us as believers, as those who are blessed. We meditate on the word of God, on his law, day and night. When we're delighted with God's word, we can't get enough of it. That goes along with that definition of being delighted. So, so we, we are so delighted, we can't get enough, so we saturate ourselves with the word. The blessed person pursues scripture like a young lover devours a love letter from the one they are courting. Rereading the love letter God has given to us. It's been a few months ago. We, we took some stuff out of the, the closet in one of the bedrooms because we were doing some, some painting and we were also looking for some stuff because when you move a lot, you go, I know we have it somewhere. Which box? And in this box were letters. And they were letters from me to Emily in Fort Collins when she was going to school. And there were letters from her to me 
going to school in, in Greeley. Love letters. I'd like to say I read through all of them, but I didn't. But I have looked at some of those after 40 years. I don't know. She's not here, so she won't scold me for not remembering. They're love letters. Remember? Remember what that's like when you're, you're in that, that courting? You just love that, to, to read them, and, and you read them over and over, and you just can't get enough of, of what's contained in those, those messages of, of love. So this idea of meditation is like that. Reading and rereading the love letter God has given to us. Now I want to add to that a different aspect, a different imagery to help us even more understand this idea of meditation. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. And in this passage, Jeremiah is in anguish. He's hurting. And he's hurting because God is calling for judgment on Judah. And, and Jeremiah is the one who's going to say, yeah, judgment's coming. He's in, he's in deep pain. And so he goes to God's word. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy, the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. All right. So Jeremiah figuratively ate God's word. Those words were his delight. So what does he mean by ate those words? I found this. It's from A.W. Pink. He gives some details to what Jeremiah meant by ate them. He says this, ate them means appropriation, assimilation. Meditation stands to reading as digestion does to eating. It is, it is as God's word is pondered by the mind, turned over and over in the thoughts and mixed with faith, that we assimilate it, that which most occupies the mind and most constantly engages our thoughts. So his idea is, when we eat God's word, we're taking it in like a meal, and we're going to, like cattle, regurgitate that over and over and over until we absorb it, until it makes something happen within us. Now, all of this goes somewhere, too, because we're delighting in God's Word. That's positive. We're meditating on His Word because we can't get enough of it. We just got to have more and more. And, and, and the next positive, verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. The, the blessed person delights in God's Word, meditates on God's Word, and they produce fruit. There's something produced. Fruitful people are actually really enjoyable people to be around. In the body of Christ, I mean, if I'm going to be around somebody, if I'm going to choose to be around somebody that I really enjoy being around, I'm going to be around people who produce fruit. That's fun stuff. They're encouraging. They're inspiring. And their speech is determined by Scripture. 
So, so they're, they're, in a way, kind of easy to be around. They're enjoyable to be around. They're blessed because they've got fruit. To be a fruitful person, the psalmist is showing this picture of, of being planted. A, a tree has to be planted in the ground to produce fruit. If you're really going to produce really good peaches or apples, I've done both. The tree's got to be in the ground. You might get a tree in a pot and it produces a, a flower and maybe you'll get a peach. Mm, probably not two years in a row. Well, you put that tree in the ground and, and the roots go out and things start happening. Then you get fruit all over the tree. The other thing is, a tree, a, a tree that's not planted, it has no roots. And, and the wind comes, and it, it can get blown anywhere. There's, there's no structure to it. There's no strength. In, in a hot weather, it, it wilts. So the, the psalmist is specific about connecting this fruitfulness to being planted. And not just planted, but planted by streams of water, he says. And, and, and rivers, streams of water, are often used in Scripture to illustrate God's spiritual provision. Here's two examples. Psalms 36, 8 and 9. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from your river, from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Or how about... Revelation 22, 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations. So you, you see this picture of fruitfulness. Connected to being planted by a river. This is huge. To be happy, to be blessed, our nourishment and our strength must come from God through His Word. I always come to an image in this, in this psalm about this being planted because in my childhood, we would go out to the Marlette Dairy Farm west of Longmont and we'd walk uh, a ways up St. Brain Creek. It was always kind of an adventure. And we would play in the world's largest plains cottonwood tree. It, it held the record for decades and decades as the world's largest plains cottonwood tree. Massive. I can't remember all the dimensions and I didn't look them up for you, but it, it was well over eight feet across. Hundred over a hundred feet of crown. The thing was massive. And it's by St. Vrain Creek. And there are places in that part of, of Boulder County where the winds come down through the valley there and they've clocked them at 120 miles an hour. And I remember times going over to the big tree. That's what we called it. Hey, you going to the big tree? Yeah, let's go to the big tree. 
And you go to the big tree, and maybe there's a few branches that were broken out of it because of the windstorm overnight. And just up from the big tree are other large cottonwoods that were yanked clear out of the ground by the wind. But here's the big tree, rooted by a river. It's huge, it's massive, it's fruitful, and it's solid. I have to say that it, it's not there anymore, but because it is a plains cottonwood and 100 years is really exceptional and it, it finally died. While it was alive, it was a testimony of solid roots. Because the roots are what's important. 120 mile per hour winds did not shake it from the ground. The roots of a tree are the most important part. They keep the tree secure when the weather changes and the wind. It's also how the tree gets nourishment and water. Yet without roots, the tree dies. Likewise, the most important part of a believer's life is their spiritual root system. The believer's roots draw nourishment and strength from Jesus. From the Word. There's another term that we use that, that describes this rootedness of a believer. And that's abiding. Abiding. And, and that's abiding in Christ. So, so follow with this picture. This, this is from John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. The connection is very clear. We got to have roots in Christ. The, the whole thing here is all about this blessed person then producing fruit. So what's fruit? Well, the fruit in a blessed person, in a believer, it can be evangelism. Very often people talk about, well, where's their fruit? Have they won anybody to Christ? That's one form of fruit. Romans 1.13 is a place you can go and see that. Are we, are we preaching the gospel? Are we presenting the truth of the gospel? Another fruit for the blessed is godly character. Romans 6.22 and Galatians 5.22 and 23. What's your character like? Financial giving to God's work. Romans 15.28. If you're giving financially to the church, you recognize that your finances aren't important. What's important is your relationship to God because He's going to provide for you anyway. That's being rooted Related to that is serving in the church. Serving in the church and, and doing good works that are associated with the, the works of God. What's your involvement in the body of Christ? Colossians 1.10 If you're fruitful, you're involved in the church. 
Another fruit would be praise to the Lord. Hebrews 13, 15. You know, one of the things that, that marks the fruitful for, for me as I, as I lead, as I, as I work as a pastor, is when, when people are willing to go, you know, I, life is bad, but God is so good. That's fruit. Fruit is, is going, yeah, God is good. God, I praise God all the time. That's fruit. There's others. Those are, those are really key indicators of fruit. Now, in verse 3, the psalmist also speaks of prosperity. And the prosperity he's speaking of is not money. It's not financial. It's not business success. It's not good health. Even though a blessed person, even though this happy person may experience those things, the point isn't financial and business success. It's not that. The point of the psalm is our prosperity or reward in Christ. It's all about being connected to Christ. The greatest prosperity that the blessed person, the believer has, is pleasing God. Even when we suffer, in the middle of our suffering, and and you can watch this and and see this so many ways when when you're around the persecuted church. The righteous suffer. Scripture's filled with that. The righteous often suffer. And we know this from a a variety of different places. One of the places that I always go to is is the life of Paul. Do a, a very good study of the life of Paul. He was fruitful. Would you agree? Paul was incredibly fruitful. But he suffered like daily there's other passages that, that speak of the righteous suffering. Psalms 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's being connected. Or how about Acts 14, 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Our fruitfulness very often is how we respond to the the suffering. It's not trying to find a way to be comfortable. It's being connected to God, so no matter what happens... We're blessed. We're happy. And in that, we produce fruit. Now, the psalmist is it's so cool because he contrasts the conditions of the blessed with the condition of the wicked. And he's just spent several verses, the majority of the psalm, talking about the blessed. And then he, he speaks of the condition of the wicked. And it doesn't take much. Like the first phrase. Verse 4. The wicked are not so. So any of the positive things, any of the indications that, that he had about the blessed in the beginning of the, the psalm, he just says, that's not the wicked. And he goes on. But are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. A wicked person hates God and is habitually hostile toward God. So describing the wicked is really pretty simple. The condition of the wicked is, 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 is in this picture that the psalmist used, like chaff. Chaff is worthless. It's easily, a, it's easily blown away in the wind. You know, I, I grew barley and, and wheat on my, my farm, and the combiner would come in. And the way the combine works is, is you take that grain, and they've got these fans going, and the chaff just blows out the back. It's worthless. You, you just blow it away. You get rid of it. It has no value. Chaff cannot produce fruit. You're not going to get, you know, I'm growing wheat. I'm not going to take the chaff and get more wheat. It's chaff. It's, it's like a waste product. It's ultimately destroyed. It's of no value. I thought of an image. Um, it's not as much now as it used to be, but it's like the peanut shells on the floor of Texas Roadhouse. Any of you remember, you go into Texas Roadhouse and the floor is just covered everywhere with the peanut shells? Or how about a baseball stadium? I remember going to Coors Field one time and I had my big bag of peanuts and my boys were doing sunflower seeds. And by the fifth or sixth inning, you know, you stand up to, to cheer for the home run and you're going crunch, 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 because the the holes of the peanuts and the sunflower seeds, they're all over everywhere, aren't they? That's chaff. That's, that's stuff that gets swept up, taken to the dump. The wicked then only have judgment to look forward to. That's the point. The comparison of the blessed person or the wicked person is measured in verse 6 by the coming judgment. A judgment of all men and women. Everyone will be judged. If you're blessed, if you're a believer, if you're blessed, you're one of those that comes to that point of judgment and you are welcomed into the eternal kingdom and eternally rewarded. So you go to judgment and what, you, what happens? God says, welcome home, my son, my daughter. You're, you're, you're with family. You're home. You're blessed. The wicked, nah, the wicked, they come to judgment and they're sent, they're sent to eternal pain and suffering apart from God. There's a clear distinction. There's a clear contrast between the two. And there's not a third place. You are either blessed in this life because, not because you have more money, but you're blessed because you're connected to Jesus. You're connected to God. And your delight, your passion is for His Word. And you have all of eternity with God. You have eternity with Jesus. You're, you're in this eternal blessed place. Or you're chaff. 
And the only thing you have to look forward to is pain and suffering and being separated from God. There isn't a middle ground. We need to remember that Christianity is not about willpower. It's not about making resolutions. It's not about keeping rules with our human strength. You know, it's July, so we don't usually talk about our, our, our usual, you know, New Year's resolutions. You know, how many of you have kept your New Year's resolutions? You know, most of mine are gone by January 2. I'm going to stay away from sweets. Right, until tomorrow morning. Okay, that's not what Christianity is. It isn't just a set of rules. I have to do this. And you try, to, you try to keep to the rules by your own strength. That's not the point of this psalm. The psalm is you're connected. You're rooted in Jesus. And you're rooted in the Word. So, so that's where your strength and your nourishment comes from. So really what Christianity is all about is what we love. What we delight in. Our being blessed as believers is what we desire more than life itself. The reality is that in what Jesus, what God has done, is he has divided all of humanity. And the divide is in what people delight in. It's in what people love. What people hunger and thirst for. John chapter 3. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's what we delight in, what we love. So let's finish with uh, some some practicals. How how do we delight in God's Word? How do we come to a place where we could say, I delight more in the laws of God, in His Word? How do we do that? So I have two ways. I think they're they're simple and I think they're very doable for, for delighting in God's Word meditating in God's word and being fruitful. The first one is to pray. You can never pray too much. And this is a specific prayer. And the prayer is, God, transform my taste buds so that I have a supernatural craving. And the reason I go there is, it's, it's very much in our human nature. I have a craving very often for sweets. Like right now, I have a craving for a Pepsi. Wow. And I know that there's nobody here who gets up in the morning and has a craving for coffee. How many times have I heard or you have heard someone go, I just can't start my day without coffee. There's a craving for coffee, for that caffeine, right? Now, some would say, well, Bill, you have a craving for sweet and caffeine because it's Pepsi. Yeah. 
I get that. So we're willing to say, I have a craving for sweets, or I have a craving for coffee. Why don't we pray that God would change our taste buds spiritually so that we have a, a, a day that cannot go by without God's word? I crave his word. I can't start my day without God's word. If we're willing to say, I can't start my day without coffee, we should way more be able to say, I can't start my day without his word. That becomes our prayer. Spirit of God, change my taste buds. Second, start eating. We're going to go have a potluck. And we're all going to go over there and we're going to eat. And the last time we had a potluck, I was going, man, there is more food here than... I mean, we could have fed all of Douglas. And it was good food. Right? So... You want to delight? Start eating. Fill yourself with God's word over and over and over. So what that means is you come to the table and you gorge yourself in the marvelous, delightful, tasty food of the Bible. So this is the instruction in this one. This is one of those meals where I want you to go to the meal. I want you to pull up to the table. I want you to start eating. And I want you to be a glutton. I want there to be such an over-the-top gluttonness in this body of Christ that you just, you're just oozing with the Word of God. If you go to the table and you're a glutton and your desires for the Word, you can, you can eat and you can eat but you will never overeat. You won't have a weight problem. You'll produce fruit. Go gorge yourselves. Go be gluttons in God's word. Father, I thank you that you've revealed truth to us. That in your truth, we have something that we can get a hold of that we can desire more than life itself. Help us, Father God, to continually desire to eat from Your Word, to delight in Your Word. Holy Spirit, stir us up in such a way and transform us in such a way that our greatest desire is for the Word of God and for Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that through Christ, through the sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we have been, as believers, planted by a river. We are part of the vine. We cannot be moved. Thank you for your word. Help us as a people, Father God, to be gluttons of your word. In Christ's name, amen.